Back to Acts chapter 6. Let's, let's begin looking there in verse 1. Uh, Luke writes this, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. As we return once again to Acts chapter 6, I want you to notice that Luke began by explaining how the church responded to the conflict that came about between two factions of the, Jew, of the Jewish culture in Jerusalem. Their solution to the problem of the neglect of the Greek-speaking widows was to nominate seven men to oversee the distribution, making sure that no one was left out. As we said two weeks ago, this was not a glamorous position, but it was essential for helping to maintain unity within the fellowship. Of these seven men, Luke chose two, Stephen and Philip, to demonstrate how the church began to fulfill the second part of Jesus' mandate. You remember back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, when Jesus told His disciples that they would be witnesses of Him in Judea and in Jerusalem and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The second part of that mandate, that they would be witnesses in all of Judea and in Samaria. The remainder of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 follows Stephen's confrontation with the Jewish people in Jerusalem, his trial before the council, and his stoning at the hands of an enraged mob. Chapter 8 discusses the spread of the gospel out from the church in Jerusalem and focuses on Philip. This morning, I'd like to focus our attention on the rest of Acts chapter 6 and consider how Stephen provides for us an example of of the kind of faithful service that ought to characterize Christians in every age and every place. Let's take a look here, and let's see if we can't uh, draw out from this passage the example of Stephen. In verse 8, we just read verse 8, we see a description of Stephen here. Right? How is he described in verse 8? Well, he's described here as being full of faith and power. Um, that word faith there in verse 8, this is one of those verses where it's somewhat challenging because we have all of these different ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. And as some of you have been uh, going through this series that we've been on in, in Sunday school for a while, and it's been several months back now, but we talked about the issue of how we got the Scriptures where they came from and how we know that the Scriptures we have are reliable. And one of the things that we find is we look back and we try to collect ancient documents, one of the things we acknowledge as believers is that we do not have the original uh, manuscripts. We don't have the original writing of Luke anywhere. It's been lost. 
Very likely, it was destroyed as it was used up. Used to the point where it was no longer uh, any good. And so it was copied and then the original was destroyed when it became uh, no longer usable. And so we don't have the original. All we have are copies. But this presents a challenge to us because copies are made by men. And men make mistakes. And so not every copy we have has exactly the same wording. And so this is one place we find there's a conflict. There's a, there's a disagreement between manuscripts. This word faith here in verse 8. Some manuscripts have a different word. It has the word grace here. In fact, most of the other modern translations of the, uh, of the Bible, if you look at them, the NIV, the New American Standard, ESV, any of the other ones, they all use the word grace here instead of faith. To be honest, I really don't know which is the right one. But I don't think it matters. And here's why. First of all, we know that Stephen was full of faith. We're told that in this passage. It's obvious also that he's full of grace. Because the power of the Holy Spirit rests on him. So I have no problem. Either word works just fine for me. Okay. Here we see Stephen. He's described as being full of faith, full of grace, full of power. And it resulted in his being able to perform miraculous works. Because it says that he was full of these things. He was full of grace or full of faith and power. And he did great wonders and signs among the people. Now this is something unusual, isn't it? I mean, I don't know when the last time was that you or I uh, performed a great wonder or sign among the people. Hasn't happened in my case. But I think as we look at this passage, we see something interesting about Stephen. I want to actually go back and look because we, we get a, a more full description of Stephen if we look at the beginning part of the chapter as well. The whole chapter describes him. It says in verse 3 that he's full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. And you say, wait a second, Stephen's name isn't mentioned in verse 3. You're right. But what was the qualification for these men that the church was supposed to call to be deacons in the church? What was the qualification? There in verse 3 we're told. They were to seek out seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So guess what? He was full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, because he met those qualifications. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, now we have the naming of these men. And Stephen is singled out for description in verse 5. Stephen here is described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now, twice already in these verses, Stephen has been called full of the Holy Spirit. It's also described full of wisdom, full of faith. And then again in verse 8, he's described as full of faith and power, or grace and power. Stephen here is a man. We look at this description. What is the complete description? He's full of wisdom. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. He's full of power. I want you to notice something about, those, about this description, though, those characteristics. None of those characteristics are based on any talents or abilities that Stephen had apart from God. Every single one of those terms is something that only God can provide. Something that only means, only has meaning and significance in respect to God. What does the Bible tell us about wisdom? It tells us that man's wisdom is foolishness. And that God's wisdom puts to shame the wisdom of men. What does the word of God tell us 
Well, the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit? He is God himself. That, that seems pretty obvious. Okay, You can't have the Holy Spirit without God. This is, not, this is something that comes from God. The faith. What is the object of faith? If you've been through the Truth Project with us, you, 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 you may remember the discussion about faith. What do we have faith in? That's what's important. It's not our faith that's important. It's what our faith is in. It's the object of our faith. A lot of people today say they have faith, but what do they have faith in? Del Tackett says, he asks the question, what are they, what, what's their faith? Faith in faith? That's the way some people use the word. I'm a person of faith. What does that mean? No, it doesn't matter that I have faith. The question is, who is my faith in? My faith is in Jesus Christ. When my faith is placed firmly in God, then my faith is powerful. That's why, by the way, when, when the disciples told Jesus to increase their faith, he didn't do that. He told them, no, you don't need more faith. Even if you have faith like the grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's not the amount of faith. It's the object of faith that's important. And, of course, power. Well, where does power come from? Just, just a few minutes ago, I made mention of Acts 1.8. What did Jesus say? You'll be witnesses to me. But he says you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so these are attributes that, and qualities that come from God. Stephen here is not described as a very talented, gifted individual. Stephen here is not described as someone voted most likely to succeed by his high school class. Most popular. Best looking. None of that describes, I mean maybe it does describe Stephen, but that's not the important description of him. We don't know what he looked like. It doesn't matter. What matters, apparently, are all of these character qualities that all come from God. Everything in this description. It's not about Stephen being naturally gifted. You see, this is the very first thing I want you to understand. Not only are these qualities in Stephen not based on his own talents or abilities... They should not be unusual among God's people. These ought to be the qualities of every one of us. You see, it shouldn't be hard within the church to find men who are qualified to perform this ministry that Stephen was called to. Men who are full of faith, who are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. That shouldn't be difficult to find because these qualities ought to characterize every single one of us. They're not based on our talents, not based on our abilities. They come directly from God. Let's move on. I don't want to get any more in that. I've got more to say, but that'll have to be for another time. Stephen, we see the description of Stephen here. This is a man who clearly God was working in and through Stephen. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Something very unusual even at that time. But verse 9 we see that opposition arose. Just because Stephen was blessed by God with these qualities, just because God was ministering through him didn't mean that everyone was going to listen and everyone was going to respond to him. There was opposition. 
In fact, it came from numerous fronts. There's dispute about what exactly this means in verse 9 when it says that there were some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, and then it lists four different cities. There's a lot of dispute about exactly what that is, whether it was one synagogue, whether it was four synagogues. I don't think it matters. What I think really matters for us to understand here is that there were Jews in the city. Now, these appear to be Jews who were not from Jerusalem, so they probably were Hellenists. Greek-speaking Jews, the ones that we, that we saw that he was put in the position to minister to their widows. Okay. And they were opposing him. They were the ones who rose up in opposition to him. It says they disputed with him in verse 9. And of course, Stephen, because the opposition arises, Stephen is now given the opportunity to defend his faith. Defend the truth of the gospel against its enemies. I would say what's interesting here as we, as we see this, first of all, is that, as, and as I already mentioned, just because Stephen enjoyed the power of the Holy Spirit and great godly wisdom did not mean that everyone would be compelled to accept his testimony. Now that's something that we forget sometimes. Just because God is working doesn't mean there won't be opposition. Just because God is working doesn't mean everyone will be compelled to just go along with us. In fact, usually when God is working is when the opposition is greatest. And there's numerous examples through Scripture. Nehemiah comes to mind as a, as a prominent example of that. When he was doing exactly what God called him to do and the work was going along wonderfully, that's when opposition arose, when they were doing great work for God. And Stephen sees the same thing. In fact, I would say that there are many here in this church in Jerusalem or in this city of Jerusalem who became hostile to Stephen for exactly that reason, because of the ministry he was doing. Not in spite of his ministry. Because of it. Now verse 10 we see that Stephen didn't, didn't fold. Right? The opposition arose, but that didn't stop Stephen. In verse 10 it says, They were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. I love this verse. Here's Stephen. Now, verse 8 only doesn't say anything about him speaking in verse 8. It just says he did wonders and signs. But, but verse 10 implies that he was preaching. That he was speaking. And they objected to what he said. But they couldn't refute it. They couldn't overcome it. They, they didn't have an answer for it. And Stephen was empowered by the Spirit to refute and frustrate his critics. We're told here, not only does Stephen display this wisdom, which had described him earlier in the passage, but it says here that the Spirit actually spoke through him. That's the expression here. It says the Spirit by which he spoke. When Stephen spoke, it wasn't Stephen speaking. Understand? When Stephen spoke, it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Now, you might say, well, what exactly does that mean? I will remind you. We won't turn there this morning, but you can turn to Mark chapter 13 and verse 11. Jesus promised to his disciples that when they were called before the council, when they were dragged before the authorities, not to prepare ahead of time what to speak, because he said, when that happens, I will give you, the Spirit will give you the words to speak. And he instructed his disciples. He told them. He promised them. The Spirit would speak through them. Now Stephen here is experiencing that. 
What a tremendous, tremendous thing. This is, by the way, the first instance where someone other than the twelve apostles experienced persecution, as well as experiencing the Holy Spirit speaking through them and giving them wisdom and filling them. This proves, by the way, to us that it wasn't, it wasn't just the apostles to whom Jesus was speaking in Mark 13. He was talking to all believers. He was telling each one of us that if we truly are disciples, and when we are, when we are called before the council, when we, are, uh, called, uh, when we come under persecution, because we stand up for the truth, because we speak the truth, that the Spirit of God will give us wisdom to speak. We can rely on it. Jesus promised it. And now in Acts chapter 6, we see it happening. Not to Peter. We expect that of Peter. Not to John. We expect that of John. But to Stephen. A guy in the church whose job it was to take care of the widows. And when he was called in front of the council, he received wisdom. And they couldn't stand against it. They couldn't answer and it's funny how we talk about witnessing and sharing our faith. And the question people always say is, what if somebody asks me a question I don't know? Well, let me give you a little bit different perspective on that. What if the Holy Spirit gives you words to say and they can't answer you? That's what's happening here. No, they might get mad. That's what they do here. The Holy Spirit spoke through Stephen. And they didn't know how to respond. Simon Kistemacher in his commentary says this, if the Greek-speaking Jews had realized they were opposing the Holy Spirit, they would have known they were fighting a battle they couldn't win. You see, they thought they were just standing against the man. They weren't. Because Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was ministering in the power of the Spirit. And then we go on in the passage we see there in verses 11 and 12, that since they were unable to overcome him and refute what he was saying, they were reduced to using deceitful tactics to try and stop his ministry. That's what we're told there in verse 11, that they secretly induced men that it has the idea of coercing them, almost against their will, to lie, to deceive, to stir up the people. What it says there in verse 12, that they seized him and they brought him to the council. Stephen is the first person other than the apostles to stand trial for his faith. Of course, he wouldn't be the last. But Stephen was privileged to lead the way as a layman in the church. To lead the way. He was... I know this. you may be thinking, Pastor, you're kind of... I think you've got things turned around here. You're saying he was privileged to get called into court because he spoke for Christ? He was privileged to come under persecution. Yeah, and it's going to get better. Don't worry. Chapter 7, it gets really good. That's when they kill him. I haven't gone crazy. Okay. But remember, we're disciples of Christ. That means our entire value system is turned around. What this world says is important is not important to us if we're truly disciples of Christ. What Christ says is important. That's what matters. We realize that this, this life is just pre-season. The real season's coming up. These, this life is just preparation for eternity. Stephen's arrest was based on deception and falsehood. And by the way, as I read it, it really reminds me a lot of Jesus Christ. 
Wasn't Jesus Christ arrested under false pretense? Again, we don't have time to turn there. I always have more in my notes than we could do. Matthew 26, you can look there. Matthew 26, 59 to 61. They bring Jesus in and they, they question him. And they accuse him of claiming that he was going to destroy the temple. Jesus never said that. In fact, you notice they accuse Stephen of essentially saying the same thing. Never said that. Okay. But they use false pretense in order to arrest him and bring him in. And then as the trial gets underway, verse 13 and 14, we see that they, they don't even try. They don't even try to argue the real case. They know better. They know they can't, they don't have anything against Stephen. He hasn't done anything wrong. And they can't refute his arguments. So what do they do? They find false witnesses. They resort to lying about what he said. There are a lot of similarities here between Stephen and Jesus. Let me just point out four of them. Ben Witherington in his commentary on Acts, he, he lays out a whole bunch of them, and I just took four of them. Notice that both Stephen and Peter, or both Stephen and Jesus were tried before the high priest in the Sanhedrin. We see that there in verse 12. That he was, that they stirred up the elders and the scribes. Verse 12, it's the high priest, or I'm sorry, chapter 7 and verse 1, it's the high priest who questions Stephen. Just as Jesus stood before the high priest, so Stephen does. The presence of false witnesses. They use false witnesses against Christ, too. The testimony was similar. In verse 14, they testified and said that he spoke against this holy place. We've heard him say that Jesus will destroy this place, the temple. Again, the same lie. They use that same lie against Jesus. And in verse 11, they charge him with blasphemy. They say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words. That's the charge they levied at Jesus. He spoke blasphemy. Stephen, in many ways, was privileged to experience the exact same kind of rejection, the exact same kind of persecution, the slander, the falsehood, and the opposition that Jesus Christ himself experienced. And it was a privilege. Another similarity between the trials of Stephen and Jesus is that both of them withstood their lying persecution. They were content to simply testify to the truth before their deaths. We can see that if you look at John 18.37, that's what Jesus told Pilate. He said, "For this is the reason that I'm here, to testify to the truth. And Stephen never once, and we'll get into chapter 7 next week, Stephen never once defends himself. All he does is preaches the truth of the gospel. That's all he does. He doesn't try to defend himself against the charges. He ignores the charges. Jesus never tried to defend himself either. We see such similarity here. Stephen is, is, is he's following in the footsteps of Christ. And as such, he gives us an example. Finally, there in verse 15, we see that Stephen stood before the council. And when he did, he displayed the same glory that Moses had after he had spoken with God. You see that at the end of the passage here, it says that all of those people in the council, when they saw him, they saw his face as the face of an angel. I believe what it's describing here is that same radiant glory. Remember Moses back in Exodus when he went and he met with God and he came down from the mountain? The people had to put a veil over his face. They couldn't look at him because his face shone because he had seen the glory of God. And Stephen here... now. All these members of the council, when they saw that, that should have caused them to stop and go, whoa, 
wait a second. What's going on here? This is unusual. Not only is it unusual, but, but clearly, this is from God. I don't do it. They miss it completely. We'll see that in chapter 7. They, they don't even see it. They don't even notice it. They don't, don't even recognize it. doesn't register with them at all. In fact, it really, when it is brought to their attention, it, it, it angers them. I would say this about Stephen is that he truly was a servant of God. The Jews ought to have recognized it in his face. But they were past seeing the truth about Jesus. They had their chance to consider the truth about Christ. And now they're looking at Stephen and their response is violence as they try to secure their own power, their own influence. And yet, when we look at this verse, what we should see, we should see God's stamp of approval here. I think verse 15 indicates to us that everything that's happened up to this point, God is approving of on Stephen. He's not approving of the wickedness of these other men, but he looks down at Stephen, this man, and God approves. He approves of Stephen. And I would suggest to you that if verse 15 signifies to us God's approval of Stephen, then we need to go back and we need to draw out from, these, from this passage what is it that God's approving here? And how do we do that too? Because if this is something God approves of, then you and I ought to pursue it. So let me suggest to you that Stephen is an example that all true believers ought to follow in two ways. These are found early in the passage. Way back in chapter, or way back in verse 3, we see the first thing. You see, verse 3... Stephen's not mentioned yet, but here is when they are, the church is deciding, what do we do about this situation? And the, or the apostles tell the church, this is what you do, verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Seven men of good reputation. They were to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Stephen, I believe what this tells us about Stephen is something very important. Stephen was faithful. Stephen was faithful. How do I know that? Because he was a man of good reputation. That is, he was not someone from the fringes of the church family. Nor was he someone who remained a mystery to the rest of the people in the church. Well, the people in the church there in Jerusalem knew Stephen well. They knew him well because they knew his reputation. He was a man of good reputation. A man who bore witness. That's what that word, that expression means. Good reputation. It means to bear witness. In fact, it's, it's the same root word as Acts 1.8 when Jesus said, You will be witnesses for me. And they said, Look out for a man who's that kind of guy. Who's, the, who's, who's an example of what Jesus said and Stephen was. Well, he wasn't unknown to the people of the church. They had seen evidence that he was full of the Holy Spirit. By the way, not just a believer. Not just that he was a Christian, but that he was truly empowered by the Spirit. That his life was truly under the control and the influence of God's Holy Spirit. And they'd seen the, the, the instances of him using and demonstrating godly wisdom. And I would suggest to you that that doesn't happen in a moment's time. That takes time to develop that kind of understanding of a person's character. To see 
what they're like when the pressure's on, to see if they really respond with wisdom. And Stephen did. There's something to be said for faithfulness to the church of God. Today, I think it seems that many Christians will attend church when it's convenient. They'll fellowship when it's convenient, when it's easy. But few will sacrifice anything to be faithful. Stephen's example is just the opposite. He is a model of faithfulness. A pastor tells the story of a barber named Jim. He and his wife and their three children were one of the most faithful families in our Sunday school, he said. But Jim found it difficult to make ends meet, and so we were not surprised when he announced that he had accepted a job in another state. A few months later, however, he returned and was back at his barber chair. He didn't seem the least bit troubled, and he greeted his friends with his usual broad smile. While he clipped hair, he explained, There was no church or Sunday school in that new town, not one. The people are too busy making money, gambling, and drinking to want a church. Our children cried for Sunday school, and my wife and I agreed we couldn't raise them in that atmosphere. So we decided to take less pay and come back here where we can worship the Lord. I think Stephen is a prime example of someone who is committed to being faithful to the church. He was committed, he was determined, because Stephen was well known, well respected. I don't think it was an accident. Let's remember the context of the situation. Not very long before Ananias and Sapphira, who had once been thought of as being upstanding members of the church, were struck dead by God because of their deception. I think the church would have taken some care about this decision. So I think it's safe to say that they knew Stephen well. Stephen was faithful. But more than that, he wasn't just faithful. Stephen was also available. Stephen was available. Verse 2. So we look back, we see this early in the passage, verse 2, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The ministry to the widows was not glamorous, nor was it a position to be desired, but Stephen apparently was not concerned about such things. It seems that he was willing to do even the most menial task in the church, Two weeks ago, we, we looked at this passage and we, we concluded that no ministry in the church should be considered unimportant or non-spiritual. The unity of the body is made possible by the selfless service of many like Stephen. I think sometimes we get the wrong idea. We get the idea that only there's, there's only certain ministries that really qualify as spiritual ministries. Or somehow there are only certain things that, that really are worthy of us. And that somehow for us to demean ourselves and to be made available for whatever needs may arise is somehow beneath us. That's not the way Stephen was. See, not only was Stephen faithful to the church, but he made himself available, willing to do even the most menial tasks. He didn't see them as insignificant. They were crucial and vital. There's a man named Ed Roberts in the mid-1970s who created the world's first commercially successful computer. You may not have heard of him. Uh, When he created this company and he began to design this computer, he hired a 19-year-old man who I'm sure you have heard of. His name is Bill Gates. He hired Bill Gates to write software for him. Roberts sold his computer business in 1977 and he bought a farm. A few years later, at the age of 41, he entered medical school. Of course, Bill Gates is the head of the largest software company in the world. 
one of the richest men alive. Ed Roberts is a physician in a small town in Georgia. But when he's asked about it, Roberts said this, the implication is that the PC is the most important thing I've ever done. And I don't think that's true. He says, every day I deal with things that are equally, if not more important here with my patients. You see, we get things mixed up sometimes. We tend to think, well, these are the, these are the positions in the church that are important. These are the things that I want to be known and seen as doing. But there's other things. I, 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 I wouldn't do those things. And that's not the way Stephen was. You see, Stephen was faithful. He was a faithful part of that body. But not only that, he made himself available. Willing to do anything that needed to be done. Can I tell you? Those are the only two qualities. Those are the only two qualities that I see in this passage that Stephen had any control over. Those are the two things that Stephen did that, we can be, that, that are examples for us. Everything else in this passage came from those two. Because not only was Stephen's example something that all true Christians should follow, but his ministry is one that all true believers can experience. You can experience a ministry just like Stephen. Now, I know you're jumping ahead of me to chapter 7 and thinking, but he dies in the end. I know, I know, I know, I know. Listen, we'll get there. Okay. I want you to see something about Stephen's ministry, though. And I think this is not unique to Stephen, or it shouldn't be. This is something that's available to each one of us. There's two things I want you to notice about this. First of all, Stephen was empowered by God. Stephen was empowered by God. We see that. We already looked at the description. I'm not going to go back through all that with you. He's described as being full of the Holy Spirit, faith, grace, and power. But even more than that, it's clear in this passage that Stephen's ministry was expanded greatly through the blessing of God. See, where did Stephen begin? He began by being faithful to the church. And then he was called on to perform this menial task. This inglorious task of taking care of the widows, these poor and helpless folks who couldn't pay him back and offer him nothing. That was the job that Stephen got called to do. But it isn't very long before we see Stephen in verse 8 doing great signs and wonders. Preaching. Refuting his opponents. And in the entire chapter, in fact, chapter 7 is the longest single, uh, uh, the longest single address recorded for us in the book of Acts. Peter's messages, Paul's messages, Luke doesn't give it. Luke gives us more from Stephen's message than he does from Peter or Paul. Now, that didn't, Stephen didn't start out that way. He started out being willing to serve the widows. And God began to expand his ministry. And I think this principle is very important. Stephen was faithful and he was available. And God said, fine, I'll take your faithful, I'll take your available, and guess what I'll do? I'll multiply it. And before long, your ministry is going to expand. I'm going to have more things for you to do. Matthew 25, 21 tells us this principle. Jesus, in telling the, the story of the, the talents, and he had the worker who has received five talents, and he went out and he, and, he, and he earned five more. And when the master comes back, what does the master say to him? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Jesus explained this principle very clearly. 
that faithfulness and service to our Lord will, re- will result in greater responsibility and greater service. Stephen was faithful in the ministry to the widows in Jerusalem. The very next thing we see him doing is performing miracles. And he was blessed for his faithful service with more and greater opportunities. And eventually he got to stand before the council and lead all of the leaders, multitudes of the Jews, and he got to preach the gospel. And I can't substantiate this from Scripture, but you know, we, we do know the Apostle Paul was in the crowd that day. And I wonder, I wonder, if maybe Stephen's message, somewhere deep down in the heart of the Apostle Paul, began to strike And if it wasn't that, that maybe was the beginning of God striking the heart of the Apostle Paul and breaking his heart to where in just a couple of chapters, the Apostle Paul, who was a a persecutor of the church, became the great apostle and missionary of the church. The apostle to the Gentiles. The reason you and I are here. Because of him. And where did he get his start? Well, I wonder if it didn't start in this message of Stephen. Because he was faithful. And God said, okay, I'll use your faithfulness. And I'll multiply your ministry. And you might even be cut short, but your ministry will continue because the Apostle Paul is going to carry on where you left off. And boy, he's going to turn the world upside down. Who knows? All I know is he was faithful. He was available and God said, fine, I'll take that and I'll multiply it. God empowered him. God used him then. Because he was faithful. Finally, I want you to see this. Verse 15, we already, saw, we already mentioned this. Stephen was glorified by God. Stephen was glorified by God. See, before we get into chapter 7, where Stephen offers for his own defense the testimony of the gospel, we can see that God had given Stephen the supernatural grace to stand before the council with courage. As he stands before the council, his face shone with glory. Like that of an angel who stands in the very presence of God. That may not have convinced his opponents of the virtue of his position, but it clearly shows that God was pleased with him. Obviously, none of us desire to face persecution and death for our faith in Christ. But opposition is inevitable if we're truly willing to serve. And I would say this, if we, if we serve faithfully if we make ourselves available for ministry and learn to depend on God, we will receive the power and grace to stand before any opposition, even to the point of death, as so many believers have demonstrated throughout the history of the church. And even more than that, we will be able to please our Heavenly Father, even if we must stand alone. The question before us today is really one of faithfulness and availability, rather than talent or natural abilities. Being a disciple of Christ requires us to be faithful in our church attendance, faithful in fellowship, faithful in prayer, in building up one another, in confronting sin, in Bible study, in devotion to God. It also means that we'll be looking for opportunities to serve the body of Christ, rather than looking for excuses to opt out of service. You see, if we would simply commit today to finding our place within this church, taking our membership in the body of Christ seriously, and looking for opportunities to be a servant, God would reward our stewardship. We can't produce the courage and strength of Stephen on our own. 
but we can be faithful to the church of God and available to serve the people of God, then we will have the power of God and we'll find ourselves pleasing to God. Let me just say as I close that before you can please God, you have to be a disciple of Christ. This is not just calling yourself a Christian because there are many who call themselves Christians who wouldn't know Christ if he knocked on their door. This is not just attending church because there are many who darken the door of a church building but continue to be dead in trespasses and sins. This is not just doing good deeds. Because Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The only way to become a disciple is to turn from your sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And only then can we find our faithful service to be pleasing in God's sight. Let's